what would you say this morning? If I were to ask you to name the most comforting passage in the Bible, I'm sure that many of you would immediately respond with the 23rd Psalm, David's beautiful shepherd song. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Others would no doubt mention Romans chapter 8, where Paul writes in verse 28, Now we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them that are called according to His purpose. And then no doubt many of you would select John chapter 14. Jesus said, let not your hearts be troubled. If you believe in God, believe also in me. And when you selected John 14, you would want to include those first four verses. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself. That where I am, there you might be also. All of these passages bring comfort to us. That passage in John 14, talking about the many mansions, it especially brings comfort to us in the setting where we've lost loved ones and we're having to stand beside a newly made grave. But this morning, I want us to focus on John chapter 14 and verse 1, and just verse 1. Jesus said, Let not your hearts be troubled. You believe in God. Believe also in me. The cure for troubled hearts. The cure for trouble is faith. Faith in God and faith in His Son, Jesus Christ. Have you ever had One of those days, I mean one of those days, where everything goes wrong. It doesn't matter how hard you try. Everything just seems to backfire on you. And the harder you try, the worse it gets. I'm convinced that all of us have days like that. And I want to share a story with you that I think illustrates the point very well. There was a lady in one of our large metropolitan airports, I think it was possibly Atlanta. She had a layover there waiting for a connecting flight. And if you've ever flown anywhere east, you've had a connecting flight in Atlanta. And so, waiting there in the airport at Atlanta, or wherever she was for that connecting flight. She stopped in the airport gift shop and bought an overpriced Kit Kat candy bar for a snack. The waiting area was crowded, but down at the end of the row, she spotted an empty seat. And so she rushed to get to that empty seat, and she leaned her hang-up bag against the seat and put her purse and some small items on the table next to the seat. Did I mention there was a rather large man sitting in the seat on the other side of the table? 
Now, I'm talking about a, a, a man that I could stand in his shadow, okay? We're talking about a large man. That's important to the story. So she took a moment and she straightened her hang-up bag there on the floor beside her. She got everything in order and she was sitting down and she was ready to eat that Kit Kat candy bar. That overpriced Kit Kat candy bar. And to her surprise, as she started to reach for the candy bar, she saw the man, the rather large man in the next seat, unwrapping her Kit Kat. And she watched him break off a piece and eat it. She thought, well, I have never seen such gall. She glared at him. He looked back at her. No words were exchanged. She was so furious that she decided that if he was going to be that brazen about it, she could be brazen too. So she reached over him, she broke off a piece and she ate it. Then he broke off another piece and he ate it. It almost got to be a duel between the two of them to see who would get the most of her Kit Kat candy bar. It didn't take long. You've eaten Kit Kat, right? It doesn't take long to consume one of those. And she just sat there. You could see steam coming out her ears. She was boring mad because someone would be so rude and so presumptuous that they eat half of her candy bar. After they sat there a few minutes in silence, the rather large man got up, left, and came back with another Kit Kat candy bar. He unwrapped it. He broke off a piece. He started eating. She thought, well, I'll show him. Since he ate half of my Kit Kat, I'm going to eat half of his. So she reached over and broke off another piece and ate it. And once again, we, re we repeat the same scenario as they duel to see who can eat the most of the Kit Kat until the candy bar is gone. And she's sitting there, smoke is just boiling out of her ears. Her eyes are flaming red. She is consumed with anger because she says to herself, this is the most ridiculous thing I've ever seen in my life. And she just sits there and she just glares at that man. I've seen women glare like that. And he looked at her Neither one of them said a word. And just then over the intercom, the announcement was made that her plane was ready for boarding. So she opens her purse to get her boarding pass, and you know what's there? Her Kit Kat candy bar. She's eaten half of two of that man's candy bars, and hers is still in her purse. Sometimes we have days like that, don't we? When we think the large man sitting next to us is eating our candy bar, and it turns out we still had our candy bar. Has there ever been a time like that in your life? When things just seem to be really, really, really going wrong? When the large man sitting next to you was eating your Kit Kat? And it's at those times and in those moments that you wonder, what's going on? That is the way the apostles feel when we come to John chapter 14. If you look at the context of John chapter 14 and the events leading up to that, my goodness, a whole box full of their Kit Kat candy bars have been eaten. They have been on a roller coaster of emotions. The week starts gloriously with Jesus making a triumphal entry into Jerusalem. 
People are waving palm branches and they're shouting, Hosanna to the king. Even the chief priests who had been plotting against Jesus cried out in despair, What can we do? The whole world has come out after him. But Jesus did not come to establish an earthly kingdom. And Jesus refused the crown. They were disappointed. They were stymied. Their hopes of a Jewish kingdom had been dashed. Their dreams had turned to dust. They realized that they would not have Jesus as their miracle-working king. So the fickle crowd began to change. It wasn't long until the chief priests were looking for someone to betray Jesus into their hands. As this 14th chapter of John opens, Jesus and the apostles are in the upper room. They've eaten the Passover meal together. And just prior to speaking the words of our text, Jesus has dropped three big bombshells on those disciples. He told them he's going away. And they can't come. He told them that one of them is a traitor. And he looked at the fickle Simon and told him that he was going to deny him three times. Folks, that's a lot to take in. All at one time. And you can imagine how those disciples were disheartened. Jesus is facing the cross. He's facing the most ignominious death that a man could die. And in spite of what Jesus is facing, His concern is for others. Jesus knew the coming ridicule. He knew the humiliation of the crown of thorns. He knew the scourging that was coming. And facing the scourging and facing the crown of thorns and facing the humiliation and the ridicule, facing death, Jesus chose to comfort those disheartened disciples. And he says, don't, don't let your hearts be troubled. Jesus knows when we're sad. And Jesus knows when we're confused. And Jesus knows when we're mad. And Jesus knows when we're depressed and in despair. And Jesus knows when we're troubled. And here in this passage, Jesus comes to give a remedy. And He comes to give a cure. For troubled lives, anywhere, everywhere, for all times. Whatever the plight might be, whatever the bludgeoning sorrow we might be going through is, Jesus comes with the adequate remedy. And that remedy is Jesus Himself. To the one who might suffer loss, 
to the one who might be about to collapse under their load, Jesus comes with His inspiring, revealing, uplifting, all-sufficient power, and He says, Don't let your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in Me, Jesus said. You see, the cure for a troubled heart is not despair, as some would want to say. The answer of despair is no cure, no help, undone, overboard, finished, it's over. That's despair. That was suggested to Job, if you'll recall. That great man, he had been one of the wealthiest of all the men of the East. He had had 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 female donkeys, a great household of servants. All of his wealth was wiped away in one fell swoop. All of his children were taken from him. He's covered in nasty, filthy balls from the crown of his head to the sole of his foot. And he's sitting in the ash heap with a broken piece of pottery scraping those nasty, filthy, slimy boils off of his body. And his wife says, Job, give it up, man. It's not worth it, Job. Curse God and die. His former friends were gone. They weren't sympathizers. They were cynical critics. Job, Job, buddy, you must have done something really bad for God to be punishing you this way. And his wife says, curse God and die. Job told her, you speak like one of the foolish women speaking. Shall we at the hands of God receive good and not receive evil? And you know what happened? In all of his trials, in all of his tribulations, Job never gave, gave in to despair. And it said, in all of this, Job sinned not with his lips. But Job's wife, in her encouragement for Job to curse God and die, that, my friends, is the answer of despair. And the great tragedy is that so many in our day and time are prone to accept that answer to the trials and the pains of life. But another answer to the trouble of life is Stoicism. What is the doctrine of Stoicism? You might think of the word Stoic. The doctrine of Stoicism simply states, in simple terms, that you seal your heart against all feelings. You make your heart like it's a stone and you put away all feeling. You deaden your heart, you deaden your sensibilities, you deaden your emotions, and you refuse ever to give vent to tears, and you do not, under any circumstances, turn away from that course. As the remedy of a broken heart, the doctrine of Stoicism is the horrible. And then another cure that some propose for a broken heart, troubled hearts, is denial. And it boldly declares, there's not any trouble. There's not any sin. There's not any suffering. There's no pain. There's no death. It's just all a bad thought. I'll forget about it. The problem is it's a false philosophy. It's like the ostrich. 
putting its head in the sand and being afraid to face the facts of life, or like Scarlett O'Hara and gone with the wind. Oh, well, I'll worry about that tomorrow. I saw tomorrow's another day. You just deny. Well, Stoicism, denial, these are not the cure for a broken heart. Jesus comes and Jesus says, let not your heart be troubled. Have you ever considered how tense, how nervous, how worried, how fretful people are in our day and time? When was the last time you saw someone wait patiently in a checkout line at Walmart or Brookshire Brothers? Or they stand there if they've got a buggy and they go, trying to find a line that's shorter? Or someone come, or one of the people there comes up and says, we've got a self-checkout lane that's open, and you say, no, thank you, I don't work here. We're so nervous. We're so overwrought. We're in such a hurry. Right now, right here, in this quiet place, singing songs of praise to God and focusing on the memorial supper to the Lord, I hope, I pray, that you know in your heart right now, God did not intend for us to live tense and nervous and worried. God did not make me and you for that kind of struggle for existence. It's against every law of nature, and it's against every law of health, and it's against every law of God. The essence of Christianity. The core of Christianity is trust in God. As Jesus lived on this earth, as he traveled up and down the dusty roads of Palestine during his ministry, he was constantly amazed that humanity really did not trust the Heavenly Father. We hear on his lips statements like, Why are you afraid? Or how little you trust God. Why are you so fearful? How is it that you have no faith? Loved by every gentle word, by every act of compassion, Jesus Christ was trying to show men and women that God is not only all-powerful, God is also all-loving. God is nearer to every one of us than we know. He's always ready. He's always willing to make His power available to meet our needs. Think about those men in that room that night that Jesus was talking to. They had been His closest companions for three years. They had walked the dusty roads of Palestine with Jesus. They had seen Him heal the sick and raise us the dead. They've seen him make the blind to see and the lame to walk and the deaf to hear and the dumb to speak. They've seen him turn water into wine and they've seen him feed thousands with a little boy's sack lunch. But to those men, Jesus had to say to them, let not your hearts be troubled.
And he told them why. You believe in God, believe also in me. Maybe that's our problem. Maybe we've never really become personally acquainted with Jesus. We know about Jesus. We know about his birth and we know about his miracles and we know about his teachings. We know all the good things that he did. But we don't really. Down deep inside, we don't really know Jesus Christ. We can't say with Paul as he wrote to Timothy, I know whom I have believed. Write this down. It's on your final exam. God did not design us for tension and worry. God designed us for happiness. God created for us peace and joy. And He created us for peace and joy. It's God's will that we live life free and that life be lived to the very utmost for the glory of God. What are your fears? What are your troubles? What are you most afraid of? Take it to Jesus. Because He tells us not to be troubled. And He's the only way out of trouble. He's the only way out of perplexity, sorrow, and the black night of sin and sinfulness. Jesus bore the weight and the guilt of our sins in His own body on that tree on Calvary's hill. Jesus came to this world as the remedy for sin. Thou shalt call His name Jesus, for He shall save His people from their sins. Those are the words the angel spoke to a young Jewish girl by the name of Mary when she was about to have a child. Jesus is the victor and conqueror over the unspeakable tragedy of sin. Jesus is the victor and Jesus is the conqueror over all the troubles in our lives. Paul wrote, Thanks be to God who gives us the victory, he said, through our Lord Jesus Christ. When you come to know Jesus Christ, not know about Him, but know Him, and you give your life to Jesus. And you make Jesus the Lord and the Master of your life, the Lord and Master of all of your life. Then Jesus is going to bear our burdens. When we make a complete surrender of our stubborn will to the will of Jesus, then we understand what He meant when He said, "You Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God. Believe also in me. This is your opportunity to make changes if you need to in your life as we stand together and always sing.